1: Here's a phrase I'm personally pretty sick of hearing, and I expect you could be too. The new normal. Mm, If I had a pound for every time I've heard that, I'd have a pretty decent holiday fund, I tell you. Uh, For a low-carbon, no-fly break, of course, after last week's episode. I think the new normal as well. Is that an oxymoron? No? Because how can something be normal if it's also new? Anyway... That was the first phrase that came to mind when thinking of how to introduce this week's topic, an investigation into what the new normal or perhaps the next evolution of our workplaces could look like. Taking not just lessons from how the way we have all worked changed thanks to Covid, but also considering what would be the most sustainable Back in 2014, a study from the Carbon Trust predicted that increasing the number of UK employees working from home could cut three million tonnes of carbon emissions a year. Well, six years later, practically overnight, we were plunged into a situation where theory became reality. According to a recent piece by The Times, before March 2020, only 6% of us said we were working from home. A month later, in April last year, that jumped to 43%. 28.5 million people were working from their kitchen table or their sofa or their shed or bed. So what did that mean for the environment? And should it encourage us to explore a hybrid model moving forwards? I'm Greg Foots, and today's Witch Investigation asks, does working from home help the planet? Which Investigates is a podcast from the UK's consumer champion. We work to make life simpler, fairer and safer for everyone. And our mission for this podcast is simple. Find out the facts and see who's actually delivering on the promises we see on packaging in the press or shared on social media. Our first season is focusing on claims of sustainability. From plant-based to plastic-free, eco-travel to electric cars, I'm figuring out what genuinely reduces our environmental footprint and what is simply greenwashing. Coming up, I speak to a scientist who studies
0: the impact of our commute to work. On the 23rd of March, we see a massive shift There was roughly 70 to 85% drop in commute emissions across
2: the nation. I hear more about what a hybrid model looks like. There's these sort of binary options of we all work in the office, or there's fully remote working. Everybody's out and about, they're at home, they're in the coffee shop, there's no central office, and the hybrid model is somewhere in between. And I quickly learn that today's question doesn't actually have a simple answer.
3: The further out into the country you live, generally speaking the higher your travel footprint is likely to start becoming. So, you know, if it's a five-mile drive for you to get to the shops, then that's not good for carbon.
1: Just a heads up, this investigation is going to have a bias towards more office-based jobs. Sorry if that isn't you, but lots of the discussion will still be super interesting, I promise. Over the past 16 months, it's a pretty safe bet to guess that there have been some big changes to the way you work. And if you were one of those 24-plus million people who started working from home, I'm sure you didn't miss this. A definite upside to swapping a commute of minutes or hours for one of mere seconds. I personally relish the respite from being crammed into a tube or from waiting on the platform for the train that's more often than not delayed or cancelled. We are sorry to announce that the 817 service is cancelled. And this, of course, meant less commuter-related emissions. But how much?
0: I'm Cardenbury Lokish. I work at the Institute for Transport Studies as a researcher on transport decarbonisation.
1: Now, I appreciate this is the low-hanging fruit of today's investigation, the obvious quick win when asking whether working from home can help the planet. But the conclusion is an interesting one. Let's start with the data then. And that's why I'm chatting to Kadam, as she co-authored a paper helpfully entitled Estimates of the Carbon Impacts of Commute Travel Restrictions Due to COVID-19
0: in the UK. On the 23rd of March, we see a massive shift. There was roughly 70 to 85% drop in commute across the nation. So this is actually an 85% drop in commute emissions. We are even talking about 90% drop in emissions in certain regions in England. So when
1: lockdown happened, commuter emissions across all types of transport dropped 90% in some areas of the UK, 70 to 85% on average. That's huge, especially when we consider that globally transport accounts for around a quarter of CO2 emissions. Kadam told me that, unsurprisingly, the largest emission reductions were in large cities like Birmingham, Newcastle, Leeds, and, of course, the big smoke, London. And, as I explored in our electric vehicles episode earlier this season, it's not just the effect of those greenhouse gas emissions on the climate that is concerning. I read a shocking study from the Committee on the Medical Effects of Air Pollutants. It was commissioned by TFL, Transport for London, last year, and it found that particulate pollutants pollution. That's a mixture of harmful solid bits and liquid droplets that get belched out and become suspended in the air. That can be up to 30 times higher in London tube stations than on busy roads above ground. And that particulate pollution is particularly harmful to us because those little bits are around 30 times smaller than the width of a human hair. And that apparently means they can enter the bloodstream easily. Couple that with the fact that possibly due to its comparative deep tunnels and poor older ventilation infrastructure, London's tube network has higher particulate matter concentrations than other subway networks around the world. So yes, not commuting has also likely had significant benefits on our health too. Back to the whole of the UK though, what happened to these emissions as we got deeper into lockdown?
0: This holds true just for April 2020. From May onwards, People start getting bored, they want to start going into work, you know, despite the guidance that was provided to us by the government. So we see slight levels of recovery, you know, reaching almost pre-pandemic levels just before the lockdown was lifted in June. Which means, yes,
1: when the lockdown was imposed and the majority of us started working from home, the pre-lockdown commute emissions were slashed. But it didn't take long for them to rise back up again. In fact, another practically titled paper from last year, one in the journal Nature, called Temporary Reduction in Daily Global CO2 Emissions During the COVID-19 Forced Confinement, brief, that concluded that the unprecedented decline in emissions we saw is, quote, nothing to celebrate. Yet yeah, the authors say it will be temporary and make little difference to the world's ability to meet the goals of the Paris Agreement and stave off catastrophic levels of global heating. And it gets worse.
0: The road traffic levels have gone up, actually, and crossed pre-pandemic levels. And these kinds of road traffic are mainly for shopping trips, basically.
1: Yeah, because of lockdown, we're now travelling more, which is no surprise, perhaps, that after months at home, not being able to see friends or family, as soon as we could, lots of us jumped in the car, willing to travel further and more often to catch up albeit outside, two metres away from each other. So it sounds like, with respect to commute emissions, working from home did help the planet when we were first locked down. But the savings we made are being eroded by increased travel. And if people work from home more in the future, it may be a similar case. Less commute emissions, but maybe more leisure emissions. There's another big impact of potential planetary savings or loss that we need to look at, though, and that's the impact of working from home versus working in an office. According to figures released by the UK government in 2019, it's estimated that businesses are responsible for 17% of greenhouse gas emissions in the UK. Those emissions come from lots of different building sources, lighting, heating, air conditioning, etc. And I want to get into those because there's a surprising but tasty little fact in there. But they also include the heavy footprint of manufacturing. And we could increase that 17% figure even higher, in fact, if we took into account the whole
3: supply chain of a business, too. What you can do is you can track the way that when an industry produces something, a pound's worth of product, it has some emissions and it also buys some stuff from all the other industries, causing them to have some emissions. But not only that, but those industries then buy from other industries because that's what they have to do to do their work. And so you get this ripple effect of emissions going right through the economy to infinity. This is
1: Mike Berners Lee, an expert in carbon footprints to be honest, we could have spoken to Mike uh, for all of our investigations in this season but he's joining us for this one and if his name sounds familiar, it's because yes, he is the brother of Tim Berners-Lee who invented the World Wide Web. And actually the areas of the Berners-Lee's expertise cross over as Mike will tell us some unexpected impacts of using the internet very soon. First though, what are the relative office emissions of working solo from home versus joining a team in a dedicated building?
3: It depends on what you're swapping for what. If you're working from home in a home that would otherwise not have anyone in it during the day, not have the heating on, not have the lights on, then actually you're increasing your home emissions potentially significantly. And if the office that you're not going to still has to be kept running because one or two people are there, so all the heating and lights are still on anyway, then you know it could actually be worse. So in terms of workplace emissions, working from
1: home could actually have been responsible for a bigger per-person footprint. Whether it did depends on a bunch of different factors, but a big one is when you're working from home. The consulting firm WSP UK looked at the carbon output of 200 UK-based workers across different locations and concluded that the environmental impact of remote work was higher in the winter due to the need to heat individual workers' homes versus one office building. As the report noted, energy management in buildings is generally more sophisticated than individual homes.
2: It's one thing in summer when you've got all the windows open and you're getting some fresh air in. It's rather different when it's winter and everyone's got their heating cranked up. And actually the load on the networks could be pretty extreme then. This is Tom Cheeswright, a futurist who
1: gets paid by clients to predict the future, something I'll be asking him to do very
2: soon. There's a really important consideration here when it comes to this flexibility of working, which is that most of our homes are a lot older, draftier and colder and hence less efficient than our offices. If we're all packed together in an office, a modern, energy efficient building, then we're expending an awful lot less carbon in heating that space than we are if we're all spread out and at home. So there is a really big sustainability challenge of lots more flexible work, even if there is less travel as a result.
1: A big part of this, of course, is how energy efficient your home heating is, something I tackled a couple of episodes ago in our Will Hydrogen Soon Be Heating Your Home episode. So during spring and summer, working from home may have a lower footprint. You don't need to light a whole building. There, there isn't an aircon unit blasting away. But for the majority of us, when it comes to workplace emissions in autumn and winter, working from home may well not be the best option for the planet. I want to get into what the future of working models could look like. But there's one final impact of working from home during the pandemic that I want to stop and explore. And it's the one you might not have thought of. Zoom. Teams. Our old friend's Skype. How many hours did you spend on video calls during lockdown? Crikey. Again, if I was a betting man, I'd wager you've probably at least had one online meeting today, even if you're in the office. In fact, I record these podcasts over a video call. Uh, I'm here in the small understairs cupboard that I've turned into an audio booth at home. It's a particularly hot one, I tell you, today. Producer Rob is there in his lounge. Our experts and guests dial in from wherever they are around the world. And all of that internet use comes at a
3: cost. So if if you look at the carbon footprint of the whole world's ICT, including all the data centers, all the networks, all the end user devices. It comes in at something like somewhere between two and a half and four percent of the world's carbon footprint. That's because these data centres, huge buildings across the globe containing everything
1: from processes to storage software to telecommunication systems, they require huge amounts of energy to keep running 24 hours a day. Doing so produces lots of heat and then yet more energy is needed just to cool them down again. And Mike just said that our connected world accounts for 25 to 4% of the world's carbon footprint. It sounds small, but it's similar to the amount produced globally by the airline industry. That's according to Mike Hazas at Lancaster University. And these emissions are predicted to double by 2025. However, it is tricky to calculate this stuff, as I discussed with Mike. When he wrote his book, How Bad Are Bananas? The Carbon Footprint of Everything, back in 2010... He estimated the carbon footprint of countless things, from big issues like deforestation or volcanic eruptions to major events like the World Cup, to things closer to home, such as a bowl of rice or a warm bath or... An email. In fact, a 2019 study commissioned by Ovo Energy used Mike's email figures to claim that if every person in Britain sent one fewer thank you email a day, it could save more than 16,000 tonnes of carbon a year, equivalent to tens of thousands of flights to Europe. However, that email figure was what Mike called a back-of-the-envelope calculation. And when I put this to him in our interview, he said he now has a
3: much clearer picture than he had 10 years ago annual carbon footprint of a typical person's email is probably equivalent to about driving somewhere between 10 miles to maybe up to 130 miles in a fairly efficient petrol car. So in the scheme of things, that's a small chunk in our annual footprint. But what about the huge increase in video calls during lockdown
1: though? I heard someone claim that turning your camera off during a video call could massively reduce the emissions produced. Really? Well, here's a paper that helps. It's from MIT, the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. They've done the maths and they've worked out that one hour of streaming or video conferencing can emit between 150 and 1,000 grams of carbon dioxide, depending on the service. By comparison, a car produces almost 9,000 grams, up to nine times that then, for every gallon of gasoline burned. They also say that an hour of video streaming requires 2 to 12 litres of water and allows and area about the size of an iPad mini. I don't want to trivialise these figures then, because later in the same paper, the researchers say this. If remote work continues through the end of 2021, the global carbon footprint could grow by 34.3 million tonnes in greenhouse gas emissions. To give a sense of the scale, this increase in emissions would require a forest twice the size of Portugal to fully sequester it all. Meanwhile, the associated water footprint would be enough to fill more than 300,000 Olympic-sized swimming pools and the land footprint would be equal to
0: roughly the size of Los Angeles.
1: So perhaps when it comes to the footprint of the increased use of our tech, especially video calling, there is an emissions
3: cost that we should consider. So what did Mike have to say? Actually, the biggest chunk of that is just the fact that you've turned your computer on and you're using it And the biggest chunk of that is the fact that by using your computer, you're wearing it out and you'll be causing a new one to need to be bought a bit sooner. There's really strong arguments for making sure that you make your computer last as long as you can. If it breaks, get it repaired, don't just get a new one.
1: Oh, right to repair. That was a big topic of discussion in our second
3: episode. There's a little bit of carbon in email, but again, most of that carbon is the use of your machine and the use of the machine of the people at the other end who have to read your email. And video streaming has a bit of a carbon footprint. But you know what, it turns out to be pretty small. So
1: where does this leave us? What can we learn from these various lockdown increases and decreases in emissions as we move forwards? Well, helpfully, I had a futurist on the line. Tom, what does the future of work look
2: like? So in the short term, we have this much overused word now of a hybrid world where lots of us are working from the office, lots of us are working remotely, somewhere in between, lots of travel in between, and this sort of blending of the technologies with which we've all become so familiar over the last 18 months there's these sort of binary options of we all work in the office or there's fully remote working. Everybody's out and about. They're at home. They're in the coffee shop. There's no central office and the hybrid model is somewhere in between. I think what we're heading towards is this sort of 80-20 split where if we're focused, if we're self-sufficient, if we're fairly autonomous in our work, we can do it remotely.
1: A recent survey of 500 UK firms found that 73% are expected to finalise downsizing plans by September 2021. The researchers polled the CEOs of those companies and found that one-fifth are predominantly looking to hire remote workers, while a further third are looking at a hybrid model for all staff.
0: Our National Statistics Office undertook surveys called the National Travel Attitude Survey. 51% of those who participated in the survey said they want these home working arrangements retained by their employers, And the remainder who said they wish to return to their workplaces, roughly 30% of them said, well, we wish to see some kind of flexible working arrangement.
1: Up and down the country, employers are asking themselves a difficult question. Is it better for our employees and our business if everyone returns to the office or stays working from home? Or do we go for a hybrid of the two? And if so, where do we sit on that sliding scale? And how do we make that decision? There's the health of employees to consider. There's the financial impact to tot up and also the health and impact on the planet too. Although I worry that that last one comes in a distant third for many businesses.
2: I think it's hugely important. I don't think it's first on the list of most companies unless it has a direct impact on their bottom line. But, you know, lots of companies have have had a tough time financially over the last 18 months. And the, the most important thing is the sustainability of their own business before the sustainability of the planet.
1: The impact on the planet is something that lots of employees are passionate about, though. A survey ran by Kite Insights on behalf of AXA found that over three quarters of respondents said they're ready to take action on climate change at work. And more and more businesses are recognising this and are considering the eco-effect of their decisions, including here, at which we commissioned some research to help us understand the difference in carbon emissions for working from home versus working in our main offices in London and Cardiff. And I thought I'd share a couple of the research's quick takeaways with you, as it's going to help us answer our big question.
4: Hi, I'm Doug Morwood. I'm the CEO of Insight Futures.
1: Doug and his team work with companies and businesses to assess their sustainability before making recommendations for how they can continue to grow and operate in a sustainable way. To do that, they've created a piece of software that takes all the emissions produced by a company and it compares it using various different scenarios. That could be everyone in the office or everyone at home or somewhere in the middle, as well as their various commuting emissions alongside that too like many organisations, which's ambition is to become net zero, to produce as few emissions as possible, and to ensure that any we do emit are matched by those that we're responsible for pulling out of the atmosphere. The higher-ups here sent me loads of bullet points about what changes we are going to make to achieve net zero, but uh, don't worry, I'm not going to just read them out, that's not what this podcast is all about. Here is one, though, that jumped out at me after what Mike said earlier about the environmental costs of heating a whole building that may only be partly occupied which is about to launch a desk booking system that will enable some floors to be shut down rather than having only a few people working on them and that will of course save the energy that would have been used to light and heat or cool a whole level for just a few employees which also uses an electricity provider whose energy is generated through renewable sources and it's research like this that has helped which arrive at its decision to introduce a hybrid working model moving forwards as Doug said when we chatted, doing this sort of eco-audit is really powerful on all three of those areas I mentioned before, health, financial and climate impact.
4: I think there are definitely companies who are realising that sustainability shouldn't be at the edge of an organisation. It should be front and centre, the driving heart of a strategy for growth. And those who are deciding to do that are the ones I think are not only going to survive, but are going to thrive over the coming you know, three to five to ten years. They're going to put in place the infrastructures, the operational model, the cultural dynamics, the learning and the leadership. You know, We are doing this because it's not just the right thing to do, but it makes sense from an economic model point of view.
2: Finally then, what could an office of the future look like? We're getting, you know, not just a uniform culture across the whole business, but maybe a different culture for finance because that's what works there than for marketing, than for HR, than for sales. And so you look at the open plan office and you say, okay, this team collaborates a lot, we're often working on the same project, quite often need to ask quick questions of somebody across the table, then that open plan office where it can be all buzzy and communicative and collaborative really works well. Whereas actually, if you've got an office that's focused on concentration, where people are trying to do long research projects or huge amounts of writing or coding, for example, you want silence, you want quiet, you do not want interruption. And so the open plan office goes out the window. And so what I think we're starting to see, and you know, we're starting to see this with property developers going... Do you know what? Fitting out the whole space for one culture, one style of work just doesn't work anymore. While
1: Tom suggests that certain professions may benefit from office culture and collaboration, a 2018 Harvard Business School study titled Here's the Final Nail in the Coffin of Open Plan Offices found, you can probably guess, that open plan offices actually reduce face-to-face interaction by about 70% and increase email and messaging by roughly 50%. Saying that though, working from home reduces face-to-face interaction by 100% and likely also increases emails and messages too. This evolution towards more remote working, more time at home or at a more local co-working space, say, it's leading people to reconsider where they live. I've lost count of the number of friends of mine who, in light of this need to commute less, are now considering moving further away from city and transport hubs. And this is backed up by what the property site Rightmove saw last summer, a 126% increase in inquiries for people considering Properties in village locations. Although this move away from cities and transport hubs may lead, as we were discussing earlier, to more leisure
3: travel emissions. The further out into the country you live, generally speaking, the higher your travel footprint is likely to start becoming. If it's a five mile drive for you to get to the shops, then that's not good for carbon. You know, ideally, we'd all live in places where the utilities and infrastructure that we need on a daily basis is within walking or cycling distance. But if the work from home culture encourages more people to go outside of that and into a situation where actually, although they're not commuting, just their daily life involves, in the worst scenario, getting in a car the whole time, then that's a big loss. Tricky, right? There is one last question I have regarding the future of work. Would it be better
1: for the planet if we just worked less? A new study has found that shifting to a four-day working week without the loss of pay could shrink the UK's carbon footprint by 127 million tonnes per year by 2025. So there you go, we work less, we emit less emissions. It's win-win. But is it possible? Well, conveniently, earlier this month, Icelandic researchers declared trials of a four-day work week that they'd been doing from 2015 to 2019 an overwhelming success that led to many workers moving to shorter hours. Workers reported feeling less stress and less at risk of burnout, and they said that their health and work-life balance had improved. They also reported having more time to spend with their families, to do hobbies, and to complete house chores. It sounds good. I I don't know anyone who wouldn't turn down the option of working less for the same money but that could be rather impractical for lots of people for lots of reasons. Also, that study I just mentioned, not the Icelandic one, the one that said that we can reduce our carbon footprint by 127 million tonnes a year. Well, those results need to be taken with a big pinch of salt. It was commissioned by the Four Day Week campaign, an organisation who campaigned for, yes, exactly, a four day, 32 hour working week with no reduction in pay. But the Icelandic experiment shows the mental health benefits are clear,
3: and perhaps it is doable. Humans are in an interesting situation. We've been getting more and more efficient at just about everything you can think of, generation after generation. So, if we can find a way of recalibrating a bit, shortening the hours in which we're working very often, so that we can spend more of our time doing the things that we love doing, or if we really love our work, then That's fine. Do it for as much of the time as is fulfilling. But if we get this right, there ought to be an opportunity, certainly for less people to spend more time working than they want to
1: maybe it is time to shift from the 9 to 5 Monday to Friday model that has been the staple of the workplace for decades. There are numerous examples of studies carried out in France where a national measure to reduce the working week to 35 hours in the year 2000 has changed daily routines. With more time outside of the office people have started to draw more value and well-being from time spent at home or with their loved ones. But when it comes to whether that saves the planet, it Depends what they're doing with that increased leisure time. They may be using it to do more short haul flight weekend breaks. Yeah, carbon emission calculations, as I say,
2: are tricky. So, what do my guests think? Should you keep working from home to save the planet? I think yes, if you are in the lucky position that working from home has put more cash in your back pocket, as it has for many people. There's a real generational divide here. You know, if you are a young person living in a flat or, you know, commuting into a big city, then the chances are you're probably going to be better off in terms of the planet going back to the office and taking advantage of all the facilities you're know, on offer there. If you're a bit later in your career, you know a homeowner who can afford to take the cash you're saving on your travel card or your daily drive and put it back into insulation you know retrofitting the home triple glazing ground source heat pumps whatever it may be then you probably can do lots of things that not just make your working greener but your life greener over the long term i'm afraid it's going to be down to individuals to do the maths and that in a nutshell, is why today's investigation has actually been much more
1: complex and nuanced than I initially thought it would be. I assumed working from home would of course help the planet because the commute emissions would drop significantly. But I've heard that they quickly bounced back and leisure trip emissions could increase. Then there was the fact that workplace emissions depend on when you're working. Plus, Kadam mentioned another impact we haven't really explored yet. So it sounds like an easy question when you first ask, would working from home be better for the planet? But it sounds like there are some complexities. So let me put that question to you and see what you say.
0: Well, yes, I agree with you. One of the main ones really are the social impacts. The going to a workplace, you know, interacting with a colleague, this this kind of social exposure, uh, you know, relieves a lot of work-related stress, uh, which, you know, we all have sort of experienced a lot in the time over the pandemic period
1: we want the best of both worlds the flexibility and freedom to work from home or from wherever we want sometimes but with the facilities and social contacts of working in an office sometimes too and the good news is that businesses and indeed government are considering not just what would be best for us employees but also what would be best for the planet
2: One of the interesting things is that being sustainable is starting to align with being profitable. One of my favourite experiences over the last couple of years was hearing a hedge fund manager tell me that one of their huge criteria for whether or not they invest is the sustainability policies of organisations because they're recognising how well aligned sustainability is with profitability in the long term now. Not necessarily in the short term. Is it going to affect your profit in the next 12 months? Maybe not. But if you're investing over the next 12 years, then you absolutely want to know that that company is doing the right thing the English, Welsh, Scottish
1: and Northern Irish governments all factor home working in some form into their plans for a greener future, helping meet their climate targets, helping the UK reach net zero by 2050.
4: I do think that we're going to see far more flexible working. And you know, as we go through this decade where we're really looking to try and reduce emissions within the built environment, then we're going to have to find the money, and not just the taxpayer, but government to be able to make sure that homes and offices are more efficient and perform at a higher level. And I think then the equation doesn't become so obvious between working from inefficient homes or efficient offices or inefficient offices and efficient homes
1: such an interesting investigation this one because it pulls in lots of what I've explored throughout this season. If you're considering whether to work from home or from the office or what hybrid of the two to do and you're focusing on what's best for the planet then it does come down to the efficiency of our buildings and the impact of our travel emissions. But there's also the consideration of our physical health, making sure where we work is well set up for that. And of course, an appreciation of our mental health and our social interactions too. Ultimately, as Doug just said, this will require investment from businesses, from government, and possibly from us too, when it comes to making our homes more efficient. And I'm excited about the potential of building back better, of evolving how and where we work to improve not just our workplaces, but also, our work-life balance and in light of what you have heard in this podcast what would be the best situation for you what do you think your company or business should do i would love to hear your thoughts and as always if you've got any comments or questions let me know i'm at greg Foots on twitter and instagram and which is at which uk If you enjoyed this podcast, do have a listen to our other investigations in this sustainability-focused first series. We've got one more in this season on the way for you next week. A collaboration with our sister show, The Witch Money Podcast. We'll be looking at whether your savings or investments could actually be contributing to climate change without you realising, and what you can do to ensure they have a positive eco-effect. If you've got something beyond the world of sustainability that you'd like us to investigate, a claim or a topic or a question do let me know once more I'm at Greg Foot on the socials here at Witch we're making sustainability key to what we do from how we assess the products and services we review to the way we run our whole organisation that's why this first season of Witch Investigates is dedicated to helping you make the sustainable choices you've told us are so important we've got new reviews and advice every day on witch.co.uk that will give you the power to make the best decisions for yourself and the planet. So why not sign up for our monthly sustainability bulletin that will bring you all that great content to your inbox. Just head to which.co.uk forward slash green email. Today's episode was presented by me, Greg Foot, written and produced by me and Rob Lilly. editing and original music by Eric Briar, and our executive producer is Angus Farker. Special thanks go to Richard Headland, Michael Briggs, Emily Seymour, Yvette Fletcher, Tina Boy Diaz, Rachel Duggan, and Sinead Beglane, and I'll see you next
3: time.